Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Christina Hillsberg on License to Parent. First, I wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. You can go there to sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the Parenting or Psychology category for episode number 123 with Michaeline Duclef on Hunt, Gather, Parent. I'm Michaeline Duclef, author of Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Christina Hillsberg is a former Central Intelligence Agency operative who, along with her husband, Ryan, who is also a former spook, have applied what they learned with the CIA as parents. And she's just written a book about it all, an assist from her husband, titled License to Parent, How My Career as a Spy Helped Me Raise Resourceful, Self-Sufficient Kids. Christina, thank you for the time. How you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of how the CIA has helped you out as a parent, how did you end up in the CIA to begin with? You know, it was really more of an accident than anything. I followed what I was passionate about. I studied linguistics, Swahili, and African studies at Indiana University. And I had planned on doing some sort of humanitarian work on the continent. And I fell into this interview with a CIA recruiter who had visited my campus and was interested in foreign language capabilities. And I had studied both Swahili and Zulu. And so, of course, they found that very interesting and went to the interview as kind of a practice, you know, just to appease my parents who were really rooting for a a stable government job (laughs) and ended up learning in the interview that he was from the CIA and learned about the position that I would be, you know, looking at African politics, analyzing, doing assessments for the U.S. president and other policymakers, as well as using my linguistic capabilities and traveling back and forth to Africa. And I was pretty excited about it. And so within a few months, I was in the door. So I spoke with John O'Brennan a little while back, former CIA director, and he had a pretty funny story about the polygraph test that he had to take as part of the background check. How did your first polygraph test go? Yeah, I have a story as well. (laughs) I think everyone probably does. I um, actually failed the first one. It was four hours long on suspicions that I was trafficking um, drugs (laughs) from a foreign country, um, you know, which was news to me. Um, (laughs) I wasn't aware that I had that side gig. Um, It all stemmed from a a pot muffin that I shared with another student (laughs) on a layover in Amsterdam. (laughs) So that caused me a little grief. Um, And luckily they gave me a second day, another four hour long. The first day I sort of got the bad cop. The second day I got the good cop and thankfully I made it through. (laughs) So look, we could do an hour on your time in the CIA and this will be the last question on that before we get to the parenting side of things. But considering the luster surrounding working for and in and with the CIA, do you have a highlight from your time as an operative within the Central Intelligence Agency? You know, I spent the bulk of my career as an intelligence analyst and really loved being an Africa expert. And so I would say, you know, writing for the President's Daily Brief, I actually was able to travel with um, President Bush's team and President Obama's team um, to the continent for one of their trips to provide linguistic support. And those were definite highlights for me. I enjoyed my time on the clandestine side as well. I did that towards the end of my career and um, got to do a little travel that I can't talk about. Sure. (laughs) 
Uh, but that was really exciting. And actually, when I first transitioned um, to the director of operations for this um, final tour that I did, um, that's where I met my husband. And we were able to run a case together, which is kind of unusual because most operations officers, you know, you work alone. Um, but because I was still technically an analyst on this operational rotational tour assignment, I served as a subject matter expert. And so there was a particular case that needed my Africa expertise. And so we were dating at the time. And so we were allowed to, to run it together. And that was really fun because you don't see um, a lot of operations officers and how they work. And so as an analyst, when they take you as a subject matter expert and you can see the different styles, um, it was really interesting to see how my husband worked. And he was very successful at his career too. And we enjoyed doing that together. Of course, once we married, they wouldn't let us do that anymore, <laughs> but that was fun. So his name is Ryan. And as you talk about, you, you start to date, you eventually get married, but along the way, you end up meeting three kids from a previous marriage and you were blown away from watching them operate, uh, even though I think they were in the seven to 10 to 11 range at the time. What was it that blew you away about watching them just live their lives and go about things as kids? Yeah. So Ryan's three kids were six, newly turned eight and nine when I met them. And from the get-go, I could tell that he gave them a longer leash. You know, we were at a pumpkin farm going through a corn maze and he didn't always have eyes on them. They were making purchases with their own little wallets in the gift shop. And, you know, I also noticed that they had a lot of skills that I didn't even have as someone who was almost 30 years old. They could ride motorcycles. They could shoot bow and arrow. Um, you know, they had been riding bikes without training wheels since they were, you know, very young ages. They were just very coordinated kids, very interesting kids, love to have, you know, conversations about end of the world scenarios and survival type things. And I just thought these are really impressive little kids. You know, they have a lot of autonomy, a lot of freedom to do things on their own. And they're capable of a lot of things that I wouldn't automatically associate with kids their age. And so thus starts chapters four through 15, I believe, in this book where you go over a bunch of different strategies tell stories from either your time in the CIA or something it relates to either of your time in the CIA and offer tips to parents on how they can better instruct their kids to live their lives that way as well. And that starts with chapter four, be prepared. You instruct parents to teach their kids to be prepared with something called go bags. What are go bags? So we actually introduce this concept with our kids at as young as two and three years old, and they start out as adventure bags. And the way that we do this is because we don't want to overwhelm our kids with this idea of emergencies and make it scary and intimidating. We want it to be empowering for them. And so in order to make that happen, we want to start weaving in these concepts at a young age. And so we start with this adventure bag. They're a part of the process as we're putting it together. You know, we do it at the kitchen table. We go through each item and we are very excited about it when you're very excited. They become very excited. It's like overly so, right? Ooh, band-aids and like really played up. Ooh, your own glow stick. <laughs> and when they see you so excited, they mirror that, right? And so they start to take ownership over this is their bag. This is the bag they'll carry on adventures. We're going to go on a hike. Make sure you grab your adventure bag and you start kind of ingraining that in them. It helps that ours are like these little green satchels and we call them Indiana Jones bags and that, <laughs> you know, sparks even more imagination, right? And so it's this very fun, adventurous, imaginative 
imaginative thing, the kids don't realize that you're actually preparing them for emergencies without them, you know, even noticing. Right. And so as they get older, that adventure bag evolves into a much more sophisticated emergency bag called a go bag. And that is a nod to the emergency bags that CIA gives its officers whenever you arrive at a field station that has, you know, all of the emergency supplies that you need. And this is something that we recommend for adults as well, you know, having them in your home to grab and go, but also equipping them in your vehicles as well. After you first met Ryan's bigs, as you call him, you have the bigs and you have two kids with him as well, the littles. The first time you saw the bigs riding motorcycles, you were a bit terrified. And I have to admit, as the father of a six and four year old right now, that scared me a little bit too. But then you pointed out that they started out with things like balance bikes and they're riding their bikes on their own by the age of two or three years old. And my younger one, my son actually did that as well. The the older one, my daughter, she got inspired to ride a bike because he was able to do so at the younger age. But I guess it does make a little bit more sense that if they can ride a bike, perhaps they can ride something that goes a little bit faster, assuming that they are taking the necessary safety precautions too, correct? That's right. You know, I was really, it definitely gave me pause when I saw Ryan's six-year-old riding a, a motorcycle. I think it was a Honda um, Honda 50. And I thought, you know, I filed that away, like definitely not for my kids. You know, this guy, I don't know, this is, <laughs> this is a little crazy, but it's funny the things that start to seem normal to you when you realize, you know, all, none of these skills are learned in a vacuum. They build upon each other and our kids are capable of so much more than we give them credit for. And as we're giving them all these skills, we become more comfortable in giving them, you know, these opportunities because we can see what they're able to do. So motorcycles, I bring them up a few times in the book and in a couple different contexts. One is the context of making our kids well-rounded. And we talk about this as a um, broader concept in espionage where, you know, you're recruiting intelligence assets and it helps if you're well-rounded because you want to make a connection and build common ground, build this relationship through common interests, right? And so riding motorcycles is one of the many examples of the skills that we give our kids to make them well-rounded, right? But we also talk about it in this emergency context of think of any apocalyptic movie, you know, or some sort of emergency scenario, a natural disaster, the roads become impassable and the, you know, there's gridlock with traffic. And so getting people to think, how are we going to get out and get to safety if the roads are impassable for cars? So thinking of alternate transportation, that doesn't have to be a motorcycle for our family. It largely is, Hmm. but if you're uncomfortable with it, like I was initially and still struggle with it a bit, Hmm. um, there are other options, e-bikes nowadays, you know, regular bicycles, scooters, lots of things. So it's just about kind of getting parents in the mode of thinking through those situations so that if it does come, it's not a completely new scenario that they haven't thought through. And then in terms of the kids' capabilities, yeah, you know, they started on balance bikes. And it's funny because Ryan told me that Hunter, who's now 16, had started on a regular bike, having never used training wheels at two years old. Well, this was years ago. So obviously like cell phone videos and things like that weren't happening. And I would just kind of always nod my head like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, <laughs> like any proud dad, like completely exaggerating his kids' abilities, I'm sure. And I just kind of let it float. And sure enough, Ari, our son did the same thing, um, given he was close to three years old, but technically two (laughs) went straight from the balance bike, really great coordination. And I was still saying like, yeah, let's just kind of hold off on the motorcycle. It's not something we need to do, but actually we ended up getting him one last week. So this is new. This isn't in the book because (laughs) this just happened. We, you know, they're so hard to find right now because of the pandemic. And so I, I told Ryan like, yeah, I think I'm 
surprisingly becoming comfortable with the idea of Ariana motorcycle. I never thought I'd say it. And so of course he's like, you know, so stoked. He starts searching for him. He's like, they're impossible to find right now. And he found a great deal, you know, through Craigslist, a grandpa that was selling one that had gotten him for his grandkids and they weren't using it. And so sure enough, you know, Ari's out there riding the motorcycle. I mean, he picked it up right off the bat with the bigs they had used. There's like a bar, almost like training wheels for these little motorcycles that they had all used on. Cause it can be hard for the kids to kind of um, figure out the speed, right. With their hand. And, um, Ari didn't even use the training wheels on the motorcycle. He's cruising around. Oh like, I don't gosh. even know what's happened. It's, it's, it's gnarly. Wow. <laughs> I'm so well, proud of him. Yeah. No kidding. Good luck with that too. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> at the end of the be prepared chapter, the key principles are about survival and that includes knowing how to improvise. Is there a tried and true CIA way to teach little kids on how to improvise? You know, I, I think the more we talk about it with our kids and we, we do a lot of role playing. So in terms of like what's tried and true with what the CIA uses, like it always comes back to role playing. It's done so much at the farm. It's mm. done in operational training. It's done in analytic training. And so a lot of things we will actually play out with our kids, you know, instead of just saying hypothetically, what would you do in this scenario? We'll actually say, okay, I'm going to be, you know, this person who's lost and you're going to be this gas station attendant, you know, and you're going in and you're saying, Hey, I don't have my phone. Can I borrow yours? You know, going through these scenarios and actually acting them out, which can feel silly to your kids and to you at first, but it's so beneficial to them. Um, and that's something that we took from the agency um, because we used it so much in our career there. And it really, really helps with training. Chapter five is get off the X. What is getting off the X? So this is a concept that the CIA teaches in training and the X can be anything, a person, a place, an environment. It's basically anywhere that is dangerous and your gut is telling you to run. And so it's this idea that the longer you stay on the X, the more likely it is that you'll be harmed. And so it's teaching our kids that when there is a dangerous situation, we want them to move away from it. We don't want them to go ahead because they're curious. We don't want them to freeze. And we don't want them to be in one of these situations where sometimes you see people will like play dead we want our kids to understand that the only thing that is, you know, going to keep you the safest is to get out. Right. And so we talk about that order in terms of like the way they teach active shooter training in the corporate world, like run, hide, fight. You know, your first option is always to run. And the second option is to hide. And of course, last is fight. And we get into some of that later in the book, but we do hope that our kids never find themselves in that scenario. And as part of that, we emphasize a couple other things with them, which is listening to alarms and warning signals. And we talk about how, you know, 90% of of the evacuees on 9-11 delayed their departure, you know, sometimes up to 30 minutes, right? And so we talk about that with our kids. You know, we want you to respond to alarms and warning signals with a sense of urgency. You know, even if you think it might be a drill, you need to listen to that. And the other important point that goes to this getting off the X that I think is counterintuitive for a lot of parents, and it does have some nuance. So it's particularly difficult with my toddlers. We're not entirely there yet, but it's this idea of ignoring a authority figures if necessary. Of course, right now with my three and four year old, I want them to listen to everything I say. <laughs> so they're not quite there for this lesson. But as our kids get older and they can understand some of this nuance, we want them to know that they need to think critically, especially in emergency scenarios. So for example, if you look at the South Korean ferry boat disaster in 2014, 304 of the 476 passengers aboard perished. And many of those were secondary school students. And the voice over the intercom, the voice of authority, was saying, do not leave your rooms, stay put in your rooms. And so you had kids 
in their rooms. The ones who left their rooms and didn't listen were the ones who survived. Mm. And so, you know, we hope that our kids are never in a scenario like this, but we want to equip them with critical thinking skills and these concepts so that if they are, and statistically it's very low, right? But if they are, they have their best chance of making it out alive. Well, with regarding to ignoring authority, that's especially true for, like you said, critical thinking, a dose of skepticism, because kids operate under this false assumption that all adults have their best intentions at heart. And unfortunately, that's just not the case, especially in 2021. Well, it's true. And, you know, that there have been studies shown even with adults that like you put someone in some sort of official looking vest and and they start ordering around crowds and people just kind of blindly follow. I mean, you see that with adults all the time in like these large, you know, um, crowded situations. And so, you know, kids can fall prey to that as well. And so we want them to kind of take a step back and and, you know, listen to their gut. And of course, our kids know that if they're in a scenario like that, we are going to have their back. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that they, there won't be any consequences to however they've chosen to get off the X if they end up being okay. And, you know, but we will advocate them, you know, them to the, for them to the school administrators if necessary so that they can understand the situation. But again, these are worst case scenarios. And the idea here is the CIA trains its employees for really hard scenarios, knowing that whatever they encounter in real life when they get out into the field is going to be much easier. And so we take that same approach to our kids. But I think it go, it's important to emphasize that it's always done in a fun and adventurous, organic way. Like this isn't about like protecting our kids from a big, scary world or creating some sort of paranoia so that they're like prepared to get out of Dodge. I mean, my goodness, it's like, it's not silly like that. It's not sort of this. I don't know. I I think when people get like this image of a CIA spy, they're like automatically, they make some assumptions like one, we're paranoid of the world and we're teaching our kids to be scared or two, we spy on our kids. And like, those are like so furthest from the truth. Like we really just want to prepare them in a way that empowers them and doesn't scare them. And we also want to give them autonomy. We actually, don't spy on them at all. (laughs) We want to give them, you know, do the opposite of that. So I think a lot of our approach is, is surprising to people as they learn more. It's teaching them to fend for themselves because I I think plays in perfectly to chapter six, which is look without looking, which is essentially to be aware of your surroundings. The key principles in this chapter at the end of this chapter are all about engaging in practical security. Why do you preach avoiding predictability here? Well, that's something that we learn in CIA training, specifically um, if you're overseas, you're doing operations and things, because you know you can assume that you may be being watched by intelligence services or nefarious characters, and so it's also you know a safety thing in, in areas with high criminal rates as well. You know when you are predictable and people know where you're going to be, you're making it easier for them. Of course, this is more difficult if you know your kids are on a particular schedule with a bus or different things like that. But it's something that we emphasize if you can vary your route or your times going places. It's just a kind of a good practice to do because, you know, there are, you know, people who do have malintentions. Um, I think, you know, we have this idea that bad things happen a lot more than they actually do. And I think a lot of that is related to, you know, the flow of information nowadays. We're hearing about a situation, you know, somewhere very far away that we probably would have never heard about before, but because of technology and how connected we are, we're hearing about these things. And so we think they happen more than they actually do. So I want to emphasize that. Um, But, you know, 
know, the more that we vary our routes and we're aware of, you know, our surroundings and develop that security awareness, that's a skill that can protect us into adulthood, whether you're traveling, you know, different things like that. You don't want to be the person looking down at your phone, not knowing where you're going. It's like, you know, you want to think critically, know how to improvise, know your way around because you've studied a map before you've gone out, not while you're lost in the middle of the street, making yourself an easy target for thieves or criminals. You also suggest establishing a sound or call that your kids will recognize if you and your kids are separated. Now, in my household, we have a very distinct call. This is something that we've already applied before reading this book. And that is... So I what, love it. what is the Hillsburg sound or call? <laughs> so I wish I could do it myself. So Ryan does this amazing whistle that sounds like a cricket. I've been trying it for, gosh, well, we met in, <laughs> what year did we meet? 2012. I've been trying it ever since. So almost 10 years. <laughs> um, and actually the bigs, I think, can all do it. They've all learned. Um, so I use a little like a duck call. Okay. But I just, I cheat, you know, because <laughs> I just can't make the noise. So yeah, Ryan actually learned this. This whistle down at the farm in his training, there was another officer who did like a, I don't know if this was, I don't remember if this was higher pitch or lower pitch, but different. And Ryan can do his in all sorts of pitches. And so it's pretty amazing. You know, we use it if we get separated, but, um, he was also using it when the bigs were learning their balance bikes, you know, they were living overseas at the time, um, on one of his tours and they would be like on the boardwalk in this European country. And he would just, you know, one whistle meant stop. And then, you know, two whistles Mm. meant turn around and come back to me. And it's really handy. You know, we can be in target or whatever, and you can hear him. He does it with me too. (laughs) We can't find each other. I'm like, okay, I know he's somewhere. I hear it. Where is he? So it's very useful. It's become a bit Pavlovian too, which I guess means (laughs) that it's serving its purpose. (laughs) Yeah. We're a little like Von Trapp family. I don't know. It's a little kooky. Something like that. (laughs) Chapter seven is defend yourself. Pretty self-explanatory there. Is there a good starting point for little kids here, whether it's a martial art or something else? So we start with our kids when they're toddlers, like three years old. We've started it with Gigi, um, you know, and Ari's almost five, but like doing sparring with them and teaching them how to block. And it's already been useful for Ari because he has been hit at the playground. And so understanding how to block people when they're trying to hit your face, which, you know, is something nobody wants their kids to have to deal with. But, you know, starting that, you know, and the way that we do it is like in a fun way that they think they're just kind of playing before bed and they don't realize they're actually learning these life skills. And of course, as they get older, you know, Ryan likes to wrestle with our teenage son and he did some of that actually while I was writing the book. Most of this book was written at our kitchen table while everyone was kind of meandering around me. I have no idea how I managed to do it, but (laughs) there was a wrestling happening then, which was kind of funny as I was writing about it. Um, But really what we like to emphasize to our kids is one, we hope that they're never in a situation where they have to fight for their life because that means they didn't get off the X and that's the last place we want them to be, right? But if they are, we want them to have a realistic Um, expectation for what the human body can handle. And so in the book, we talk about the fragility of the human body and how we begin emphasizing that to our kids at, you know, an age where it feels appropriate when they start watching the types of movies that um, do have fight scenes. And then we will pause them and say, listen, this person would never survive this in real life. They're going up against way too many people, or that person is two, three times their size. You know, we say things like this because we don't want them to not get off the X and find themselves in a scenario and think that they have a chance when like, you know, it, it was game over before it started. Right. So we want them to understand that fragility. 
And I love the idea of wrestling with the littles, too. I do that at home, and I just did it as a way to tough them up in a sense. I'm not trying to pin them at all, and of course I let them out. I let them figure out how to get out of certain holds. So it's cool that to to read in your book that it also does help out with self-defense, too. Yeah, you know, and it also builds confidence, right? So it's like as they're getting older, we're giving them realistic expectations. But when they're young, like the ages of your kids, we're like wrestling and playing with them, finding ways to let them feel like they're getting out and doing Mm -hmm. it themselves. And that's building confidence, right? And so that's like a whole other separate issue that I think, you know, works in so many different ways. And there are so many benefits to doing this because we want our kids to get these like little wins that build their confidence over time. Builds a lifelong physical bond between parent and child too. Chapter eight is you, me, same, same. And the gist here is finding common ground. So what is you, me, same, same? So this is a technique that the CIA teaches and intelligence officers use this with their targets to create a relationship of trust with them. They want to initially, like immediately in that first meeting, develop a a connection based on common ground, common interest, because their goal is to hook the second meeting, right? And then over time, as it's done well, you continue to build that relationship of trust with someone. Ultimately, you're wanting them to commit espionage on your behalf. But the best operations officers were the ones who were able to do this in a genuine way. And Ryan was one of them. And so in order to be able to do that, you have to have a lot of interest yourself. You don't want to be just putting on like, okay, I read this about the target. I know they really like, you know, this type of dog, or they really like this sport. So I'm going to really like this. Well, it works best when you actually really like one of those things. Hmm. And, you know, maybe you find someone you don't have anything in common. Well, what's something that you have a genuine interest and you do want to learn about that could then put them in the role of teacher and you in the role of student, which can also help to build trust. And so we apply this to parenting in the sense that, you know, life is all about relationships. We want our kids to be able to build friendships, romantic relationships, hopefully much later (laughs) and professional relationships. And so in order to do that, we want them to learn how to have conversations with people, you know, don't ask yes or no questions, ask open-ended questions, give to get, give a little bit about yourself and your topic on something, you know, that they're interested in as well. So it gets them talking and then use those common interests. And so We look for ways to make our kids well-rounded and add to that repertoire. And so a lot of ways, you know, some of the ways you can do this is, you know, look for what speaks to them. If there's something they're interested in, encourage them to try new things. But also it's important to know when to let go if it's something they're no longer interested in. And we can also model it for them ourselves. You know, even as adults, you know, we should be trying new things, taking on new hobbies, show them that, you know, even in our, you know, old age, you know, my son asked me the other day if I'm 80. He asked me if I'm 80. Oh my my gosh, please let me clarify this because he's been going around saying when I'm 80, I can do whatever I want. Right, mom? And I say, that's right. When you're 80, you can do whatever you want, man. So anyway, even in our old age, not quite 80, we can try new hobbies and new things and add to our skills. And so we want to model that for our kids. And there's so many different ways you can do it and opportunities. You can do a class together if it's something you want to learn, right? Or if it's not something you're interested in, you can sign them up. Um, just things in your backyard, you know, just exposing them to different interests and the world. Littles ask the craziest things. I'm not even kidding you. Last (laughs) night at the dinner table, my four-year-old asked me, dad, if I died, would you be sad? And I said, I would be so sad that I can't even explain it to you because it's a sadness that would never leave me. And his response to that is, 
what would happen if you, me, mom, and sister all died? I said, dude, I don't know. That's a catastrophe at that point. I guess I wouldn't oh be sad gosh. anymore, though. So, yeah, kids ask crazy things. They do. But, but as far as the end of this chapter, though, the key principles are for building rapport with others. And that includes opening little kids' eyes to the world. What are some of the ways y'all have helped to accomplish this with your little kids? Well, you know, it's been so tricky since we've been living in a pandemic. And so one of the ways that we've been doing it over the past year is actually has become this tradition in our home. And I really love it. Uh, We get a subscription box called Universal Yums. This is not an ad. Um, (laughs) We really love it. It comes every month and um, it's country specific. I never know what country it is until it comes in the mail. And so I try to peek so I can be a little bit more prepared and I'll do some sort of coordinating coloring exercise or something Mm. for the littles. And it comes with like a trivia sheet. And then there are a bunch of snacks. And so we sit either up in our treehouse or at our kitchen table and we go through each one. And I also like read the trivia (laughs) along the way. Um, I've adopted that as my role and I kind of lead the charge. And so we pass all of the bags around. And the rule is that you have to try everything. You can't skip the egg yolk flavored potato chips, you know, in favor of the chocolate truffles. Like you have to try everything. Mm. And so as part of that, you know, it's this fun exercise of trying different foods, getting our kids, you know, opening their palate and opening their eyes to these things. But we also talk about what country it is, where it's located, the language they speak, and all this wonderful trivia about that place. And it's just been a really fun way to bring the world to our kids in a time that we haven't been able to travel. And this is something that anyone can do. You don't need to use a subscription box. Like what I did actually before I found this box was I would just go to Costco or even just the regular local grocery store. There's usually an international food aisle and you can pick like one or two things that really look interesting to you and find out what country it's from. You know, go online. Crayola has free coloring sheets and there are so many different free resources. You know, if you go to Pinterest and things like that and you can find coloring sheets for your kids ages and different trivia. So it's totally something that's replicable um, without ordering the subscription box. I just like that it comes in the mail and I don't have to do (laughs) as much prep. That sounds like a great box. What was the company's name one more time? Called Universal Yums. Yums, uh, Y-U-M-S. That's right. And our oldest is actually going to college in the fall. She's going to be a freshman and I'm going to look into getting her like her own box so that we can like zoom her in because it's just become this like really fun tradition. I mean, we've been doing it for, I think a year now, every month. And it seems like every time the box comes, we're like always surprised, right? Didn't we just do it? And like, everybody loves it. So I highly recommend it. Great idea, mom. Chapter nine is the pen is mightier than the sword. I'm a huge fan of this chapter because it's all about communicating with writing, which unfortunately is a lost art. Christina, are you with me that technology is killing our ability to write considering that we've devolved into ignoring punctuation and replacing (laughs) words with tough to decipher hieroglyphics? Oh my gosh. Or like, what is it? T-L-D-R? Too long to read. (laughs) That like new thing that people are putting at the top of things. I can't handle it. And to that point, acronyms as well, where it's like this random string of words that you either have to be an expert or a teenager to comprehend. Right. I mean, the texting lingo, it's just, it's crazy. I like to say like when I text, I still use all punctuation, which I guess is really uncommon nowadays. And it's to the point that, you know, kids will go to college and, you know, my brother, um, when he was working on his master's and PhD, he taught, you know, he did TA stuff. 
staff at his university. And, you know, he would get these emails from students that would like write in text lingo, you know, not properly spelling words in an email. And I just thought that was so atrocious. And, you know, even things like voicemail are going the way of the carrier pigeon. You know, there are companies actually who are hiring consulting companies to teach their employees (laughs) how to make phone calls. (laughs) Like it just, and it's even like at the point where like, if some, even me, like if someone calls me out of the blue and it's not scheduled instead of texting, it's like, hello, it's like, did you butt dial me? It's so weird. So we want our kids to be able to communicate. And if we don't make an effort to teach them these skills, it is becoming a lost art. And so I loved this chapter because, you know, I was an analyst. And so writing and briefing was really my bread and butter. I like to say that I really didn't learn how to truly write until I joined the CIA. And I really, credit my writing abilities to the CIA's structure of writing, the intensive training and the fantastic managers that I had. And I really want to give the skill set to my kids much earlier than I had it. You know, a lot of people don't realize that one of a spy's most prized traits is the ability to write well, even on the operational side, you're writing intelligence reports, you're writing operational cables, the better writer you are, the faster you can work and the better your work is going to be quality and quantity, the whole thing. Right. So this chapter, I go through that structure, what it looks like, how we teach it to our kids. It's much different than, you know, the intro body paragraph one, body paragraph two, and these like things called like CDs and CMs that my bigs had to learn in in middle school that were just completely counterintuitive. It was a box checking exercise. And so the structure I share in the book is the actual structure we use at the CA in our analysis. I talk about the bottom line up front and I talk about all those different sections. And I like to say that if papers are researched and outlined appropriately, the writing part should be the fastest and easiest part. And so I went through this with our oldest, um, Washington State has this wonderful program called Writing Start where they can take college classes their junior and senior year of high school. And when they graduate Mm. with their diploma, they also have an associate's degree. And so she was taking all these college level classes. And so I went through this whole exercise with her, teaching her how to write in this way. And then I share in the book that it came full circle when she was then teaching her younger sister how to do it. And I was off the hook. Um, which was great for me, but it was also enjoyable because I saw how frustrated she was getting with her sister. And it just felt like, okay, now she gets it. She (laughs) understands what I went through teaching her this structure. And so, but I know that learning this skill set, you know, it's not just going to help them with their research papers in school. It's going to help them in whatever career they have, you know, throughout their life, whether it's work or whether it's emails, you know, it's going to help them be better communicators. I love how you laid out the style that the CIA teaches you, including uh, creating analytic lead sentences. Would you mind expanding on that? Just what exactly analytic lead sentences are? So it stems from this idea of bottom line up front. And that is because, you know, we're writing for busy people like the president and other policymakers. And so you want to make sure your most important information is at the front of the paper, but then also at the front of every section, because the idea being that they're busy people, they could be called into a meeting in the middle of your briefing or, you know, in the middle of your reading your paper and they don't have time to finish. And you want to make sure that they've walked away with the most important information. And so we lead with that bottom line up front in the paper. And then each section should have this analytic lead and then everything builds on that. And so I like to think of it as an inverted pyramid. And so you're telling, you know, what that section is about and, you know, making that analytic assessment. And then as you go down the pyramid, the details are become it's becoming more detailed and those are supportive details along the way. But the most important information is up front. You also provide some tips on better verbal communication. What is give your bluff and that's spelled B-L-U-F in all caps? 
So that is if you're giving a briefing or an oral presentation, you want to tell people what you're going to talk about. So for example, if I'm giving a talk, I'm going to say, you know, hi, I'm Christina Hillsberg. I'm an author and a mom of five. And today I'm going to talk to you about my book, Licensed to Parent. And it's, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, you say what you're going to talk about and then you talk about it, right? You give the roadmap. So you give the bottom line up front, give the roadmap. And then at the end, it's always great to recap and say, you know, again, you know, we talked about X, Y, Z today, blah, 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 right? You just wrap it up. And so it's really like structuring it in a way that um, makes it easier for you to present it, but it also just makes it more digestible for people as well. Chapter 11 is considered the source. It's all about vetting others to make good decisions. Perhaps this gets back to not just blindly believing authority, especially all adult figures, but how do you teach kids to detect bullshit, especially that bullshit coming from adults? Yeah, you know, it's so tricky and it has become even more so over the past couple of years, you know, when fact is no longer fact and, you know, distinguishing what's an opinion. And and we want our kids to understand that just because someone's their teacher, you know, they might be sharing something that's their opinion. Now, in a perfect world, they shouldn't be sharing their opinion, you know, in a um particularly public school setting, especially if it's political or religious or whatever, you know, but sometimes that happens. And so really letting our kids know what that looks like and exposing them to like different views. And so I give a couple examples in the book, you know, if you have your favorite news network, that's fine, but, you know, show your kids that there are other news networks and there are lots of different exercises you can do. You can show them, you know, in real time, look, you know, this news station is covering this story and look at these three other news stations. That story doesn't even exist exist. You know, why is that walking them through that, you know, showing them um, if you can find a respectable debate on social media, you know, that, that can be more difficult to find. But, you know, I think a lot of people have been living in echo chambers over the past year. And so a lot of people have only surrounded themselves, unfortunately, with people who think the same way as they do. And we really advocate for our kids, you know, while we are saying, you know, build common ground when you're making connections with people, we also think it's really important for them to have diversity of thought in their life. And we want them to have friends who have lots of different viewpoints as they do. And we want them to be open to changing their mind. You know, there's a fantastic book about this specific topic called True or False. And Mm. it's by Cindy Otis. She's a former CIA intelligence analyst, and it's specifically geared towards a younger audience. I mean, it's helpful for adults as well, um, but it's really fantastic. And I can't recommend that enough. Well, talking to people who feel differently about something than you do, even if it doesn't change your mind, you at least are enlightened on their side of things. You can better understand where they're coming from and why they believe something certain. Exactly. And we just want our kids to also understand that it's okay to change your mind about something when you've received more information. And so we can also model that for our kids and it doesn't have to be some important, like weighty issue. It can be something very simple. Like you used to cut your apples one way and now you've realized that this is a different way. So I'm trying something new or we used to drive this route and now we're driving this other way. Right. So there are like simplified ways, especially for like younger three, my three and four year old to start to see this topic of, well, you know, I, I did it this and then I learned this. So I changed. Right. And so getting that and also knowing our kids' personalities, you know, one of my kids really hates change. Um, you know, the littles, the other is very easygoing. And so kind of, you know, getting them out of their comfort zone, if you know that they tend to gravitate towards a more like structured, rigid way, you know, we, we want to specifically push them a little bit. So chapter 12 is a big one, navigating technology. It's a struggle in our household with the six and four-year-old right now. Television, screen time, whether it's a phone or tablets, they want their own computers at this point. They're probably not going to get those for another five to 10 years at least. How do you go about moderating technology with your littles? 
you know, it's so tricky. I'm thinking my my kids right now who are watching that Disney movie, Luca, <laughs> downstairs. It's a good one. So it is a good one. They've watched it so many times. But I just read someone say that, like, it's okay to let your kids watch the same movie because repetition is good for development. So mm-hmm. I'm, like, taking that and running with it. Um, so technology is tricky. And in our home, we're dealing with it, you know, in different age groups with toddlers and teenagers at the same time. So obviously, it looks a little different in each case. Um, with our toddlers, I'm a real stickler about tablets myself, um, not because of any sort of doctor recommended screen time levels, but more because I notice a difference in my kids personality when they have their tablet. And I don't know if it's like that sense of having control over it Hmm. or because they can do all these different things, you know, their attention span, I think can be overwhelming for them. And so we save the tablets for the airplane, which obviously we haven't done much of this past year and, or like the doctor's office, if they had to go to the doctor with me, which now of course you know, they can't even do that in most settings, but we would save them for those kind of things. We specifically don't allow them out at restaurants. I think it can be an easy thing for parents to do because you just want your kids to be quiet and you want to have a nice meal, particularly if you're, you know, a couple that only has young kids, right? You can occupy your, your young kids and you guys can like have a conversation, right? Like who can blame anyone for wanting to do that? We try not to because we want to give our kids an opportunity to learn how to behave in a restaurant. And if we, and that goes the same for allowing our bigs to have their cell phones at the dinner table, or whether it's, you know, out at a restaurant or at home, we want them to be learning how to go out to eat, you know, the social norms. We want to give them opportunities to engage with the server, to order for themselves so that they're getting these skill sets, even our toddlers. But we also want to take that as a time to connect with them, right? So that's kind of where I stand on technology with the littles. I mean, I do let them watch movies in the car. I have a rule of, I don't let them watch it on the way somewhere. I try to focus on like observation skills and pointing out landmarks mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And then on the way home, if they want to watch something, I'm like, okay, yeah, we, we got some, we got some skills in. they don't know that they're learning, you know, but, um, that way there's like some moderation, but with the bigs, it's a little different. And we do give quite a bit of autonomy when it comes to technology. And I think people are often surprised by that because they think that we probably spy on our kids. And of course, we must use some sort of surveillance software because those are readily available nowadays. But we don't. You know, we actually believe that, you know, these principles that we're giving them and preparing them for life mean that we don't have to do something like that. You know, if they're out and about, we don't need to be tracking them on a GPS because we've taught them these other principles and we know that they're doing their best to keep safe. And we want to give them more autonomy and less surveillance so that they can learn how to navigate through technology. And that's for two primary reasons. Um, The one is we want, the first is we want them to be savvy. You know, technology is so important nowadays to be successful in life. And so we want them to learn all these things and kids are learning at younger and younger ages. So we don't want to keep them from things because we want them to be savvy with it. And two, particularly due to the pandemic, we want our kids to be connected. They've been so isolated over this past year. Plus, you know, we had to go through conversations of which apps were we comfortable with giving our kids because we wanted them to be connected to their friends to the extent that they could be and during a time that they couldn't see them. Right. And so we try to keep an open mind when it comes to apps. We give our kids an opportunity to persuade us to um, change our mind about apps. If they have a great, great argument, they use that same structure from the writing chapter to, you know, talk about what the 
app they want is, why they want it, what the impact it will have on their life will be, the outlook going forward, um, what it will do for their life and any implications or opportunities that they will have by having said app that they wouldn't have without it. Right. And so, you know, they know it's, they're not going to get an app if they're saying, oh, it's so in right now. Everybody has it when they ask me, I don't have it. And I'm like, so lame, right? Like that's just going to, I'm just going to give them an eye roll and they're not going to get anywhere. But if they come to me with a persuasive argument and a compelling reason, then I say, okay, well, let's give it a go. And that doesn't mean we're giving it a go with no boundaries. You know, there are going to be boundaries in place as they learn this. But the idea being that, you know, we're around to guide them when they make mistakes. There are a lot of adults, you know, out there that don't even know what's appropriate to post and what isn't right. And we want to be there to help our kids. You know, we want them to guard their future. You know, 70% of employers look at social media use before they hire someone. And more than half of those employers do not hire someone based on something negative they saw on their social media. So it's easy to see that and think, okay, I'm going to lock it down. I'm not going to give my kids any social media access. It's a slippery slope. And I get that. I get that inclination. I have lots of friends that take that approach. Um, But I would say, you know, on the contrary, there's also evidence that employers hire someone because of something positive they saw on their social media and, you know, that showed that they were well-rounded. And so we don't want to miss out on those opportunities. And again, it's coming back to keeping our kids, you know, teaching them to be tech savvy and helping them to stay connected. Okay. So considering everything that you just said and how you preach not oversharing information on the internet and social media and whatnot, where did y'all fall on TikTok for the older kids? You know, one of our bigs is on TikTok and I, and to be perfectly honest, I don't love it. Yeah. I don't love it. They have like some settings on filtering things, but it's not great. Um, there's just a lot of junk in there. Yeah. Just a lot. Yeah. But luckily our other two bigs really weren't interested. It's just one of our bigs that really wanted it because she likes the dances and it's there's, not one that I really think brings a lot of value to daily life, I'll say. There's a lot of harmless fun to be had, but there's also a lot of information that's being harvested at the same time. Yeah, you know, I um I got on it when she got on it. Um, just so that I was linked to her and I had in that because I didn't know what it was. And I just I try not to go on it because it's such a whole, it's like a you get on it and all of a sudden it's like a time suck and yeah. you're like, what am I doing? So yeah, I don't think she's on it much these days. That's good. Chapter 14 is protect your assets and that's keeping promises and living by a certain set of principles. Why is saying sorry to your kids and meaning it, of course, so important here? You know, it goes back to this whole concept of modeling these principles for our kids. I like to say that you know, yes, this is a parenting book, but these are skills that all adults should have. And part of teaching these skills to our kids is learning them and modeling them. And so we want our kids to see us, um, you know, make mistakes. We want them to see us apologize for them. And I think for me, particularly as a stepmom, this was really important because most people become a parent and they have babies who won't remember, you know, them making mistakes, won't remember them like completely losing their cool, you know, when they're hormonal and pregnant and exhausted and right. But I was doing all of this with teenagers present, right? Like, you know, so they didn't always see me at my best and they would remember these things because they're not, you know, one, two, three years old. And so I have definitely had to eat, you know, a slice of humble pie here and there. I learned this skill set and apologize to my teenagers. And I'm always constantly aware of the fact that, you know, we don't have the same kind of bond that they have with their dad. And I've tried really hard to um, nurture this trust with them from the get go. But blended families ha- come with their own complexities. And so it, I think that that actually is one of the reasons why it's even more important for me to do that because of my role in our family. 
Chapter 15 is Perfection is the Enemy of the Good. It's all about risk mitigation. And this is kind of along the lines of saying you're sorry. You instruct parents to show failure. Do you have a good example from your own life where you are able to do this? Yeah, you know, I I think I share in the book about my attempts at learning to wake surf last summer. It was really (laughs) speaking of humiliating, (laughs) Um, you know, and I did that for a couple reasons. One goes back to that. You, me, same, same. I wanted my kids to see me trying something new. Um, but I also wanted them to see me fail because I knew it was going to be hard for me. I am not a coordinated person, any sort of coordinated skills that any of the kids have come from Ryan and not from me. And so they watched me fall. I mean, for an hour at a time, almost every time we went out on the boat and it was over and over and over quite literally. And I remember the big set at one point, like one of them said, you know, why don't you just do it this time? Just like get up on the board. Like, (laughs) And it was like, okay, I knew they were so just like annoyed, you know, and I just said, listen, things might come easy to you now. And all of them got up on the surfboard first time, you know, and they can surf for like an hour without the rope and just like, they're amazing. And I said, you know, this might have all been easy for you, but at some point in life, you are going to fail and something is not going to be easy to you. And I want you to remember this moment now when I'm falling over and over again on my face and hating every minute of it. And I'm getting back up until I do it. Right. And to know that when we fail, we keep trying and, you know, we should try something new, even when we're terrible at it. It's not, you know, this polar opposite. You're either a rock star at something or you're a total failure. We can fall somewhere in between and we're okay. And it's just giving us one more experience that we can share with people. And I think, you know, as parents, we really do need to encourage our kids to try new things, but also give them room to fail and allow that to happen. And I know for me, that can be, you know, really difficult to give that distance because you want to set your kids up for success, but you also have to keep in mind that we learn so much through failure and the CIA teaches a lot of its training that way. They rely on someone failing a lot of these operational exercises. I was one of them at one point, and that was really difficult because I became the class example of what not to do, Mm. but I certainly learned my lesson. And so there are ways that we can apply this to our kids because, you know, learning through failure, we can learn a lot about ourselves. And we also know that we'll never make that mistake again. Successful people fail a lot and learn the relevant lessons. All right. These last two questions, Christina, were not in the book, but I'm genuinely curious because while you're not the most coordinated person, according to you, you have exceptional linguistic skills, you know, multiple languages other than English. I believe Ryan is in the same boat. He knows multiple languages as well. Did y'all have a plan for teaching your kids foreign languages? And if so, what did that plan consist of? So the bigs actually experienced some foreign language schools when they were overseas and international schools growing up. And they've had some foreign language, um, education in their schools here. Um, we talked about it with the littles because foreign language is really um, important to both of us. Ryan, yeah, speaks four other languages in addition to English. Um, and we, we learn differently, actually. We're completely different language mm. learners. And so I think it'd be really interesting to see how our kids turn out. But yeah, we've been talking about um, like immersion school options and, you know, our son is starting preschool in the fall. So that's something that is definitely on our radar. We do use um, some um, foreign language applications with our littles that we've already started. And it's interesting because they have completely different personalities. One is very interested in learning the other isn't. And so I think it's really important of finding that balance of knowing when to push, you know, what's our dream for our kids and what's their dream and finding that right balance of, um, deciding what fits, what's the right fit for them. So that's a conversation we are having that's ongoing in our house, but we do hope to expose them to as much foreign language 
as early as possible, much earlier than he and I both have. Gets back to allowing that independence. All right, last thing. How did the CIA train you to deal with little kid tantrums and similarly ridiculous behaviors? Oh my gosh. You know, it's so funny. You write a parenting book and like people think that you have this like silver bullet. And it's like, I get asked all these questions like, like, what are your bedtime hacks? Or like, um, you know, how do you um, stay calm and not be angry with your child? And I'm like, well, geez, you know, sometimes like these years just suck. <laughs> you know, they're so hard on us. And I just, you know, I mean, trying to stay calm, I think is a, a regular struggle for me. It's very chaotic in our house right now with so many bodies here and, you know, being in kind of the, the tantrum threes and the you know, what do you call the fours? I don't even know, but he's almost five. So I feel like that's a good sign. So uh, five, yeah, is, I don't know. Five is thinks they're old enough to drink, but they have the physical and mental capabilities of a five-year-old. Right. Or my, my three-year-old who I swear, like she screamed so much as a baby. And I finally knew what it was when she started getting more language. One of the first like full phrases she said was, no, don't help me. <laughs> wow. And so I'm like, well, now I know what the problem has been. <laughs> she's been a baby this whole time thinking that she doesn't need help. And so every time I've been helping her, she's been pissed off. <laughs> so she's like the epitome of like wanting autonomy. So she can be like our new poster child. <laughs> oh man, that is funny. Christina Hillsberg is a former Central Intelligence Agency operative who, along with her husband, Ryan, who is also a former spook, have applied what they learned with the CIA as parents. And she's just written a book about it all with an assist from her husband titled License to Parent, How My Career as a Spy Helped Me Raise Resourceful, Self-Sufficient Kids. Christina, thank you for the time today and thank you for this entertaining and informative book. Thanks so much for having me. Join me next time when I speak with legendary stand-up comedian Andrew Dice Clay. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.